The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. All right, man. Let's do it. Um, yeah. All right. What do you want to call this show? This is your show, baby. Oh. I'm your guest. I'm. You're my guest? I thought Should I was we- on your show. <laughs> When you want to call it, uh, well, it's it's hot takes, hot takes, and 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 cool breezes. <laughs> and this is where I cue, um, you know, like a Bee Gees song. Hot takes and shooting the breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Hot Takes and Shooting the Breeze with Adam Skolnick. <laughs> it's not so bad. The coolest hour on radio. It's, I mean, it's bad, but but it's welcome to Book Talk with. Wait, is that another show? I <laughs> think that talk. is. You're you're plugging my competitors. <laughs> welcome to Book Talk with Kel. I mean, excuse me, Writer Files. <laughs> I've never listened to Book Talk. I would never listen to Book Talk. Thank you. And welcome back to the Writer Files. I am your ever grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance in perpetuity for the new year. This is the first part of a year-end retrospective with award-winning indie journalist and author Adam Skolnick, who returned to rap with me about some show highlights from the last half of 2023, hot takes, and shooting the breeze. Adam's an award-winning independent journalist and author covering adventure sports, environmental issues, and civil rights for outlets such as the New York Times, Outside, ESPN, BBC, and Men's Health, among others. He is also the co-author of Never Finished, Unshackle Your Mind, and Win the War Within, a follow-up to David Goggins' smash hit memoir, Can't Hurt Me. Adam is also the author of One Breath, has narrated David Goggins' best-selling audiobooks, and co-hosted the Rich Roll podcast on the Roll-On Edition. In this file, Adam and I discussed publishing insider Beth Ann Patrick and the sui generis of the Colleen Hoover effect, award-winning climate journalist Amy Westervelt, and why more writers need to set their stories in the real world, Booker Prize-winning author Anne Enright, and the moment of burnout that changed her career, National Book Award winner and best-selling author James McBride on why some writers find no joy in being well-known. 
Number one, New York Times bestselling author Emily Henry and what it feels like to live inside a lightning strike and a lot more. This is the last episode of the year, but we'll be back soon with a follow-up and even more inspiration from some of your favorite authors. Happy holidays. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I'm honored today to be joined by my old friend, Bad Penny, journalist, best-selling author, and yeah, a truly, a truly live wire of a human being. Welcome to back to the show. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello, Writer Files universe. It truly is a universe. Yes. I've enjoyed, you had a hell of a year, Kelton Reed. Congratulations on a great year. Thank you. I can't wait to dip into some of the highlights with you. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, we're going to listen to some, just some clips or some outtakes from my thought uh, highlights from probably just the last half of the year. And, you know, you could always come back and we can do the first half, but um, just some, some things that came to mind with some guests that, um, you know, just kind of stood out for whatever reason, you know, we right. had some pretty amazing guests. Um, you did, so these, yes. This is not an exclusive list by any means. It's just ones that um, I thought would be fun to talk about without. You're not them. saying they're your best guests. You're just saying. No. You're just saying they're topical points of discussion. Exactly. For yes. this retrospective and, and uh, you know, I think we can. We don't publicly rank guests. We privately we, we rank them behind right. their backs. Private, private, yeah. private this share. public ranking that you've done here is not actually a ranking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you will be able to find links to the shows that we discuss in the show notes, of course, as always. Um but yeah, do you you want to dig in here or do you want to talk about it. anything else? Yeah. I'll talk about anything. You know me. This is a podcast. We can talk about anything you want. Yeah, man. So um, how have you been? I know we've both been kind of struggling with some uh, re upper respiratory stuff. Um, that's just kind of par for the course, I think, when you have kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you want to go through the, our list of ailments? I think that's that would be an interesting way of starting a show is my list of ailments. <laughs> <laughs> Um, an uplifting list of ailments. Yeah. Um, well, I've got a mild upper respiratory. I've got a foot thing and a lower back thing. Yeah, no, things are good, man. We were away for nine weeks in a little bit. Uh, took a little sabbatical. Um, went to, basically, the, the mission was to get to Australia. April, my wife, hasn't been home to Australia since before the pandemic. And since, and we haven't been there with Zuma. He was born in 2020. So it was the first time getting back there, seeing some of her people and enjoying Sydney and the surrounds. And so we took this kind of slow route to get there. We went on the straight line, kind of the local, the local. We went um, to French Polynesia, then Cook Islands, and then Sydney. And so we did that with a three-year-old, which, <laughs> which was its own thing. And we had like one of those crazy trips, like, you know, I remember growing up, 
we would go on these family trips every summer and some of them were fraught. Like you knew basically by day two or three that this was, <laughs> this one's going bad. <laughs> and those ones are the ones you talk about for years to come. Um, and like early on, this one was like, the weather was bad. Like the flights were getting canceled on us. It was one of those oh, kind man. of fraught trips. Um, but we found a good groove by the end and, and we could have just like stayed out and it kind of felt like we should just keep wandering, just keep being nomads. Cause the world kind of, started splintering anew and so uh we thought about it but we ended up coming home and here we are getting settled back in and uh ready for the holidays love it yeah that's a cool story um and your uh instagram has some highlights i believe right yeah yeah the instagram has some highlights if it, yeah you know it was mostly we were looking to do a lot of diving and get in the water and so we were able to do that um, and then just show, you know, Zoom of the world and just to be travelers again, because that was like for both April and myself, that has been fundamental to kind of the way we operate and live and see, see ourselves and see one another. And so, you know, having the pandemic and then having a small kid, it was like we were, we've been able to get out for a couple of weeks here and there a couple of times, but this is the first time like, a, like, you know, multi-month kind of stuff I used to do for Lonely Planet when I'd just be gone for three, four months and 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 go place to place. So uh, it, it's interesting. And when you kind of detach from normal life, you get, you see things a little more clearly kind of, um, which is kind of a dichotomy. You, you see, you kind of, like we were talking about the other day, you read the signs, you have signs that come at you. And because you're not occupied in your daily life and stuck in your habits, you can actually see them. And and whether they are arbitrary or not, you can relate to the world in a different way, which then kind of triggers your own kind of realizations or mindful realizations. And for us, it was, you know, the trip was all about pivoting and flowing and just kind of coming back to that as a, a operating system. And so bringing back the pivot and flow kind of realm back to our life here has been really helpful. And it's funny because you see things clear. And then when you reenter, and the reentry is a little fuzzy at first, and then you feel kind of you you have a little bit of brain fuzz as you try to kind of figure out um, how to get re restart. So um, I don't know how many times we're going to do a nine weeks going forward, but it's good to be it's good to be um, to have done it. I'm glad we did it, and uh, a lot of a lot of there was been a lot of kind of tectonic shifts that happened um, just coincidentally while we were there, um, and uh, and. So we'll see how that 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 maps the future. It should be interesting. Interesting. Very yeah. cool. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that. And I know you've got a big year coming up and you will be back to talk more about your own writing uh adventures. But um yeah, today we're gonna do um a little bit of a retrospective. And I think I wanted to kick it off with just how Beth Ann Patrick writes that fantastic episode, how literary critic and publishing insider Beth Ann Patrick writes part two. Yep. It was really cool to hear her discuss and I would I would highly recommend y'all go um listen to a couple episodes of Missing Pages. That fantastic podcast really she has a front row seat to um kind of this sea change in publishing that has happened. Um and that first episode is about Colleen Hoover. The Colleen Hoover effect is real. Um but you know the question is 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 this like a a one-time thing? Is she like a light, you know kind of as we talked about with Emily Henry, like what's it like to live in a lightning strike? Well, this lady has had so many <laughs> New York Times bestsellers and she started out as a, a self-published author. So I, I, I just wanted to listen to a quick snippet and um, 
Yeah. And then uh, just get, get some of your thoughts on it, because I thought, I thought this was a fascinating episode, but I also think that Beth Ann Patrick is one of the wisest um, names kind of in the business of just her, just her overall view of things. Let's listen. Um, I got a chance to listen to the Colleen Hoover episode and uh, it's pretty fascinating, honestly, like, because we hear about Colleen Hoover's success and it's kind of like, wait, wait, where did this, where did this author come from? Right. And you just kind of set the record straight on this meteoric rise to, uh, I mean, just this unprecedented string of bestsellers, as you put it the first self-published author to hit a number one New York Times bestselling list. And it's just like, whoa, it's head spinning. This story is amazing. The story is amazing. And not just one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Although, as you said, Kelton, you know, she is the first. I don't think Hugh Howey's books ever got to number one. Um, And it's amazing to see that New York Times list with Colleen Hoover, Colleen Hoover, Colleen Hoover, Colleen Hoover, Colleen Hoover. Uh, And one of the things that we really tried to dive into as deeply as we could in this episode, which is the first one um, of season two, was to determine, is this something that's going to be happening again and again? Or is Colleen Hoover sui generis? You know, is Colleen Mm. Hoover someone who just you know, was in the right place at the right time with all of the right skills. I, I think a lot of people would agree that the writing in Colleen Hoover's books is not, you know, the the gold standard for prose, okay? But that isn't really what matters here because, first of all, readers going to read what they want to read, and many, many millions of readers want to read Colleen Hoover. And Colleen Hoover isn't trying to be, I don't know, Toni Morrison or um, John Updike or any, you know, other big, famous, award-winning writer. She is writing what she loves to write, and she has also, I think, learned a lot. Um, it's very interesting. And I'm I'm sorry, I will stop in a second. But, you know, she first self-published. And then, of course, she's been picked up by, you know, traditional publishing, but still also is doing self-publishing, I believe. Um, I haven't kept up because who knows, she might have written 10 new novels since last week, Kelton, for all I know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, it's seriously. And so the thing is, At this point, her experience in putting all of this together, in starting out as a social worker who wanted to publish a novel, and now having become a multiple best-selling novelist who writes in different genres and has, you know, audiences of many different ages and, you know, is huge on book talk, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to see a masterclass from Colleen Hoover because, you know, it doesn't mean she has to give a craft masterclass in, you know, prose or literary fiction, but boy, could she give us all some lessons in how to decide what 
path in book publishing you're going to take and when you're going to, you know, accept this kind of contract and then, you know, why you would want to publish over here in a different way, all of that kind of stuff. I, I think it would be really interesting. Yeah, pretty fascinating stuff. Um, obviously, uh, that program d- delves pretty deeply into that um, phenomenon and, sh- and Colin Hoover is just a phenomenon. But yeah, I, I, I'd love to get your hot take on it and kind of your feelings about, um, I don't know, just how, what the, the nerve that she hit and um, her, her savvy use of uh, both social media and um, self-publishing. I think having been part of the David Goggins uh, phenomenon, it's like not that different in that uh, David was through podcasting and through his own social media became a social media phenomenon himself. And then that has driven um, in a large way uh, this passionate audience that has uh, consumed the books, right? Can't Hurt Me has done extraordinarily well still, like never finished, sold a million copies in a year. Can't Hurt Me is over 6 million copies now. And so um, that is very similar. Um, And the difference is that David's, you know, on social media once a week, if that, um, and he's got a a message for the, the, the audience that's very specific and not connected to the books, but kind of loosely. Um, and I believe last I checked Colleen Hoover, she's one of those that's talking to the camera a lot, you know, um, Taylor Jenkins Reed, I think is, is that, is that right? She does some of that too. And so that it's like, um, a new way of marketing in all those cases, it's an author, uh, marketing themselves, which is not abnormal because any pub, any published author will tell you the publisher does very little to help you sell your books. So it's, it's interesting that that's true from, uh, the people that have kind of smaller contracts and smaller names and even bigger contracts and bigger names. Like the, they, they might do nice displays in bookshops for like the biggest authors, but in terms of getting press and, and getting connecting to the audience, it's really on the, the author to get it. And some people, you know, uh, can do that without any help, really. Like, like they don't need even the book club circuit, you know. And Colleen uh, seems to be one of those, and so she's created this phenomenon. And I don't know that she's going to be w- one of one. I think there's people that could follow that, but it's not so easy as A plus, you know, B equal was A plus B equals C, or is it one plus one equals three? I don't know, but, uh, but it's interesting to see it. And, and so, yeah, she's a self-published success story, but she's also a social media success story. So those two things kind of bleed together. Um, one thing to, to note, and I just know this from experience, and this is no, this is not me talking badly about the New York times bestseller list. It's just, uh, from what I am aware, the New York times bestseller list is not simply the counting of books sold. It's the counting of books sold in like scattered across the country. So it's it they judge it differently. It's almost like the electoral college of book sales. It's not necessarily the popular vote of book sales. And I know that because, uh, you know, we've had our challenges even being put on the bestseller list with these kind of numbers. Like we'd be number one on Audible and never make the New York Times audiobook list. And so that kind of stuff happens. And it's because of where the books were bought. And, and, you know, where they bought books, a combination of bookstores and Amazon, is it just Amazon? So that kind of stuff influences the fact that Colleen Hoover self-published and number one, New York Times best, that means she's connecting on all levels. And that is even more impressive to me, having, having been a part of this other kind of similar phenomenon on a different, a different uh, side of it on the nonfiction side. So 
um, really impressive to be able to, to be able to thread that needle because it's not easy. Because like I said, it's not a straight number of books sold. So um, at least that's what I'm aware of. And um, yeah, anything else? No, I think that's good. You know, I think I think this idea of gold standard of prose and you know, like I, you hear that a lot. Popular fiction authors probably hear that a lot. And um, and I know Beth Ann didn't mean it negatively. She's trying to. She's positive on Colleen. But this idea that there are certain books that are better or more pure than others. I mean, certainly, it's to me, it's a matter of taste. And like, I was watching Moon Age Daydream uh, with April the other day, the David Bowie movie. And David Bowie was talking. I think uh, Let's Let's Dance had just come out. It's by far his biggest selling record, and you know, not necessarily looking back on his catalog, his best record. And some interviewer was saying, some people thought you sold out, blah, blah, blah. And his response was, you know, I never begrudge an artist for finding an audience. And, um, you know, there's no purity in poverty. And so like this idea from an artistic standpoint is what he's talking about. And so, um, you know, to me, it's like books that matter are books that entertain and uh, captivate. And that's the books that matter. So, you know, it literary, non-literary, looking back on what constitutes a classic now, we can't even judge that in the moment. And so like this idea of meeting a standard is really, uh, that's the stuff to me of academics, not the stuff of, of uh, fiction, non-fiction, great books. To me, that's my, my personal opinion. 100%. I love that take. Yeah, no, super interesting. I thought, and just to dovetail, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, I did an episode with uh, number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Lynn Barnes, who has studied the psychology of fiction and fandom, and went kind of had a similar kind of uh, viral, you know, book talk social media effect with her um, uh, Inheritance Games trilogy, and she had studied studied kind of the psychology, psychiatry, and cognitive science behind uh fandom and fiction and really interesting coming from a phd from yale uh having kind of used her own research to propel this best-selling uh series it's hmm. a ya series um but she talks about that in that episode well i mean think think about people that we love you know isaac asimov uh william gibson who would have ever thought of them as literary fiction? Ne you never would, right? But if you mm -hmm. look back at Neuromancer, it's 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 extremely literary. But like it's it was genre fiction, right? Like, but to me, that's a book that matters. That's a classic book. It, it, it will supersede and outlast, you know, so-called literary fiction, uh, like ninety percent of it. So, you know, like that that uh, it's it, it to me like that's what I'm saying. Like books that matter are books that 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 register and strike a chord with the culture. Yeah. A time and a place, and yep. again, coming back to the Colleen Hoover effect. Yep. Hey, kudos to Colleen. Oh yeah. Yes. Please come on the show. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I wanted to hop over to more serious uh, note from yep. award-winning climate journalist Amy Westervelt, who came on the show after winning a big award. Um, yeah. It's a real, I think, an important award in that she has been on this beat for such a long time and uh, has had ho hosted an award-winning climate podcast. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it. Drilled. Drilled, yep. Which, uh, yeah, she was then awarded uh, um, Covering Climate Now's Journalist of the Year Award. 
And uh, yeah, pretty big honor there. But she came on to just kind of rap with me about some stuff. And I thought I thought what resonated with me most was just kind of her advice to like writers, you know, who might be writing fiction who are wondering like, what can I do? Yeah, let's let's listen to her advice from Amy Westervelt. You know, to listeners who are maybe thinking, what can I do? You know, at the, you know, a lot of writers listen to this show, um, many of whom write fiction um, and may not have something on their radar for like, oh, something on my to-do list that I can do that will shine a light or, you know, share information or what, you know, what, what can we do as regular old people just kind of like shaking our heads and going, what is happening? Yeah. Well, I always say, like, I did a show with a friend of mine, Mary Anais Hegler, for a long, a while, maybe two or three years, called Hot Take, where we would, we, it was like a media criticism show about climate. And we would get asked this a lot, actually. And Mary had, I think, the best answer to it, which was, she kind of approached it like being a guidance counselor, you know, it was like, well, what, uh-huh. do you like? what are you good at? Um, <laughs> so for, for fiction writers, I feel like, um, actually, there's so much that can be done. I still don't feel like, like, we don't, I don't know, there's so many stories I read or see on TV or in the movies or whatever that are supposedly set today, but don't mention this problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find mm-hmm. it so odd. It's like just, I don't know, looking for ways. I feel like people, a lot of people who are not as like steeped in this stuff as maybe I am or other people are kind of put off by it. Like, I don't know, like if you try to do anything on climate, it has to be like a climate story and be very serious and, you know, um, or that you have to know a bunch about it to even mention it at all. But I don't know, to me, I'm like, I would love to see climate become more of a background detail that's just humming along, you know, <laughs> because that's yeah. kind of what it does in reality. So why is it absent from all of these, you know, present day stories? Like I'll see, I'll see stuff sometimes where, you know, it's like a, a couple today trying to decide if they want to have kids or not. And I'm like, yeah. I can't, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't imagine this not, I mean, I guess, especially if it's like a progressive couple that's, you know, like <laughs> thinking about this stuff, maybe, I don't know. So yeah, that's to me, I'm like, well, storytellers could definitely be using the skills that you have and the um, interests that you already have to kind of think about, okay, how could I, you know, help make this more tangible and real for people? Um, for sure. Yeah. And like talking about it, I think does help yeah it's really interesting because it you're right it, it it's like you don't have to go write policy guys you know no one's expecting right. you to do that it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's sometimes non-existent in in um contemporary fiction whereas it's almost been relegated to like you know like hard science fiction or something yeah yeah like whereas dystopian really, sci-fi is like yeah. the only place it shows up right. and i'm like what? why right yeah. and then and unless you're reading you know uh some some really well-known but ra- relatively hard sci-fi authors you probably you know aren't keyed into that piece but also it's like right now is the dist- <laughs> like we are living in a yeah, dystopian in present <laughs> like yes. we don't need to we don't really need to extrapolate we don't need to extrapolate let's extrapolate <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to we don't need to extrapolate but that's what we're here for you know i used to i worked with 
Amy Westervelt for a heartbeat, uh, or I worked for her. She was an editor at a magazine I wrote for time and again. And, uh, and yeah, I think that we had like a, I think we had some like middling Chinese food in, in San Francisco once together That's amazing. <laughs> and complained about the state of media before, like right before she was like digging into climate stuff, or maybe she was already doing it. I, I don't really remember. I think based on what I uh, heard in, in your guys' interview, it was like right after that, maybe where she left that magazine and started to get into this. Um, and, uh, and then I, right after that, like got into lonely planet stuff and was kind of doing my thing that has led me here. So it's pretty interesting. Always had a great respect and affection for Amy. She's amazing. And, uh, and an acerbic Twitter, Twitter voice, which I appreciate. So yeah, it was cool to hear her on your show and, and I'm so stoked for her success and, 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 you know, and doing it in a way that's helpful to the world. It, it's awesome. Yeah. And I think makes a good point about the fact that um, it's very strange that it doesn't, it doesn't come up more, but you know, I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that's part of it. It's kind of a dark topic, but we are kind of living it. <laughs> right. I mean, it comes up like, did you, did you ever read a book, uh, a children's Bible by Lydia Millet? That's a great book. It's a, like a post, it's like kind of this cheerful apocalyptic style book um and climate is is the is the beast in it and um it's brilliant and and fun and and an excellent kind of a little bit shades of a uh, lord of the flies but it much much more fizzy and fun and and weird um highly recommend it um for that but again like it's 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 not just this background noise it is kind of it is the background noise but it's also front and center and so maybe that would be called one of those dystopians a prophet prophet song just won the booker prize that's got an authoritarian take maybe i have not read it i don't know but climate must be a part of that i would think um um but i i've not read it yet uh i don't know you know like i'm gonna take issue with it a little bit and the only reason i do is because i think Issue books often don't work. There's no hard and fast rules, but if you're trying to engineer and create a book that matters or a book that's going to help make things better, <laughs> your book more often than not won't be that good. That's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And we see it all the time, right? We see it with film. We see it with television. We see it with books. These, these things that are supposed to be good for us. It's like vitamins. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like, I love vegetables, but for some people didn't like eating their spinach. It's like you're trying to medicate the world through media instead of entertain and captivate. And that's our job, right? So it, to me, our job, it depends on your job, but a fiction to me is not about education. It's about sharing and opening worlds and expanding awareness and views, but it has to be authentic. You know, it can't just be because the climate's bad and I want to contribute. Therefore, here, have my novel. It's going to help, you know. To me, that kind of stuff doesn't work. It's usually usually creates art that is inauthentic and not worth our time. And so I take a little bit of issue just with that. But you know, if and there are lots of books where weather is kind of this side character that's in the background. So yeah, that can happen, and and that does happen, and and you see it in Blade Runner, something I'm working on. It's very prominent, but it's not. It's the goal is not to educate or to somehow help in this. Uh, kind of existential battle that we're kind of sleepwalking through. So I guess that's, that's my take on it. No, I was trying to think of something more recent, uh, a contemporary piece that, you know, was kind of a, um, an allegory and it wasn't that the asteroid piece, 
um, with Leo DiCaprio. Oh, uh, don't look up. Yeah, don't look up. Isn't that an allegory about? Yeah, that's that's change? fun, but that's climate. It's all about climate and climate change. This children's Bible came out in 2020. It's really good. A children's Bible. Yeah, hey, look at that. Yeah, Lydia and, Miller. And that's a, that's a good example of. But it's authentic art because because climate's part of it, but it's the characters are so authentic and it's beyond, you know, it, it's like, it has to, the point isn't to not do it. The point is it has to be so authentic to the story and intrinsic to the story that it's not, it's almost like a layer that's there, but it isn't, isn't in your face. And otherwise it's just, you're going to, it's, it's a snooze fest. <laughs> okay. Don't you like think? It. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a hot take. It's a hot take. Maybe, maybe people won't agree with it. I like it. There are no wrong answers today. What's your hot take? <laughs> um, no, I agree. I mean, I just think like, I just think what she said about how can I help, you know, the question of like, how can I help? What can I do? Um, being answered by, well, what are you good at? I think is, is an important takeaway. That's all. I mean, I just think, yeah, you're, we're not, nobody's expecting a fiction author to solve the world's climate crisis. But yeah, what are you good at? You're good at telling stories. So tell, tell, tell stories authentically. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think climate has to be top of mind in your fiction. But I think if we're telling authentic contemporary stories, it should be, yeah, it should be a piece of it. And as you said, uh, it, it is becoming a part of that conversation. All right. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing. Wor- hey, I'm not, I'm not writing policy here. <laughs> and I think, you know, I guess I, I, maybe you could say that I'm more cynical, but like, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know. Like if you set out to help when you sit down to write a book, I just don't think like that's, I don't know. I mean, you can be inspired in a million ways. If you're, if you're sitting down at your book, every, your book every day, trying to make it great. And your goal is to help. I don't know. I'm not, I, maybe maybe that works. Maybe that works. I want to help people, so here's my book. I don't know. I mean, I, I, that works for self help. It works for it works for nonfiction. I think um, fiction is so hard. It's a good question. Maybe maybe people have success with it, but like it's it's so it's so difficult to write it well. Agreed. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.